after the start. Yeah, <clears throat> I thought I'd let the kids get out of here before I said that, because I know some of you would be rejoicing, and your kids would may take that personally, so I let them get outside before I address that. But uh, man, the summer has gone quick, uh, it seems like. It seems like just yesterday we were praying about vacation Bible school and what God was going to do there and our camps and mission trips and uh, everything. And now here we are at the starting gun of uh, school cranking back up. So uh, here we are. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Um, last week, I kind of started a processing. And, and uh, you know, I learned years ago there's a difference between delivering a sermon and delivering messages. I, I have never been much of a sermon guy. I, I uh, just try to get with a father and hear what he's saying and go with it. And uh, that's kind of been my way of doing things through the years. If you were to look at my file system of my sermons, uh, my messages, they're very haphazard. And the reason for that is, is because I, I never want to go back and just pull something out of the files because of, of uh, uh, preacher block or whatever. But uh, uh, I want to continue in that vein of thought that we were in last week. And I'm calling this series, I name it after it's come, but uh, Going Against the Flow. And last week I talked about how that God birthed his church in the midst of a first century that, you know, we, we think times are bad here because we talk about the, div the divisions in our country when it comes to politics and abortion and uh, homosexuality and, and uh, the uh, uh, possibilities of... of uh, recession are we in a recession are we not in, who's to blame and we we uh, have enough blame to cast around and there's this division that exists and what's the role of the church because uh, we see how God birthed his church in a Roman secular Roman pagan Jewish uh, legalistic time when he birthed the church in that first century I love that song we just uh, sang because when we get to that point about the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit a flame, God knew what he was doing in that time. And so sometimes we think, we, we, look, at, we look around at our culture and the division and we say, woe is me, uh, I can't believe this is such a hard time as a Christian, the world seems to be coming against us. And so I wanted to paint a first century picture for you last week that we got nothing compared to uh, what was going on then as far as things against us, but yet that's when God chose to birth his church. So the church is going to show her strength when she is squeezed the most, okay? So a little bit of squeezing, we're going to see what's in us. And if we complain and say, oh, the government needs to fix this or our legal legalities, this is what's going on, we, we're, we're going the wrong direction. When we get squeezed, we better be crying out to God. 
is where we need to go. And so last week I started into this and uh, I want to continue in that vein sharing with you my thoughts. But before we do that, I just needed to stop and pray, which we've done. But uh, I want you just to pray with me. And I, do you have the courage this morning to ask God to have his true way with you? Because I'm going to pray that God would just rock us. Father, we desperately need you. Lord, in a day when division is the call of the day, whether it's politically or whether it's about current affairs, um, Father, these have just infiltrated the church in America. We, 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 we've looked to the social media, and we looked to the government to fix this, and God, we need to be crying out to you. And so, Lord, this morning, I just cry out to you, God, would you please just rock us, Lord, uh, stir our hearts, take that flame that we have seemed to let grow dim and just spark it. Lord, to flaming, because our country and our world needs a, a church that is alive. And so, Father, please use these moments that we have set aside to worship you, and Father, fan into flame your, your bride, your church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a few minutes, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but I want to set the table for you before we go there. Um, there was a couple that owned a house, and uh, the husband was looking up at the ceiling one day, and there was cracks in the wall. And so he calls a painter and says, I want you to come and fix the crack and my wall. So the painter comes up, he, he, uh, he plasters it, he paints it, and there you go. And only to see a month later, the crack comes back. So he calls the painter up again, painter comes over, uh, plasters the crack, paints it. And then uh, a month later, the crack is back, not only that crack, but the the a family of cracks has come into the wall. And so he calls another painter up and says, I need you to fix the crack in my wall. And the guy says, tells him this. He says, I cannot fix and paint your wall to fix the cracks. He says, what do you mean? He says, the problem is you've got a foundation problem and not a painting problem. You fix the foundation and the cracks will be fixed. We live in a country today and a church in America, to be honest with you, that's full of cracks. And what we're doing is we're trying to take plaster and paint and complaints and social media and, and hope that these fix the cracks that are there. But I'm telling you, we have a foundation problem. And the foundation is what the church needs to turn to right now. 
And so we're going to be looking at this today. Because what happened is, is Jesus Christ birthed the church in the first century. And what happened is, is he took these people who had come to Christ. They had had lives that were transformed. They have now experienced the incredible love of Christ. And they have uh, come to a point of their life is different. They follow a new king. They follow King Jesus. They, their, their lives are completely different. And the world looked at them. The Romans looked at them. The Jews looked at them and said, man, they're different. There's something about them that's different. But what God did in transforming these people, he was the ultimate catch and release program. Because what God would do is he would touch these people's lives. They would commit their lives by faith and in what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he, he did. And then what God would do is he would release them back into the culture to make a difference. I remember when I was a teenager, there was a, a t-shirt that came out, and I actually found it on online. Uh, in, and uh, it's go against the flow, and you see the ichthus fish. Uh, they may have a, in your car or whatever. Uh, that doesn't mean you have a Christian car, but... but uh, there and notice how he's going against the flow. Some of you have have seen the uh, miniseries The Chosen as well, and you know in the introduction of The Chosen, uh, they show the video as they're running the graphics and everything. And there's these fish that are swimming, and one is coming the other direction, and then pretty soon another one turns and another one turns. It really speaks volumes. But what God did is he birthed this church and then he set them free, catch and release, to go out and swim against the flow of culture. And let me tell you, we're called to do the same thing. But what, is, what has happened, what has happened is, is that instead of going against the flow, I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes what we've done is we still go with the flow. It's just that we have a different pod or a different school that we're in, and so we're separated from the other fish, but we're going still with the flow instead of going against the flow. God didn't set us free and transform us just so that we could be in another pod going the same direction. He called us to a radical, world-changing Endeavor, vision is what he's called us to. And so you and I are those fish that are called to go against the flow. I, I did something this week that uh, was a little bit painful. I, uh, I started looking at my generation of the church. And uh, what's a generation? I, I don't know. Somebody could tell me historically exactly what a generation is. I figure as long as I have breath, I, I have a generation. And then you pass it on to your offspring, and, and they pass it on to their offspring. But I started looking at the spiritual climate of my generation. And yes, there were some great things that happened. There was the Jesus movement in the 60s. 
that radically transform young lives, that many of you uh, came to Christ out of the Jesus movement, it's still making an impact today. We saw things like Promise Keepers in the 90s. We saw uh, revival uh, spark in many different ways. But I had to pull the mask back and look at it a few things that concern me. Uh, I saw um, a generation that turned worship services more into entertainment opportunities. I saw um, a generation that created Christian celebrities. We we took a mega pastor and, and made him a celebrity, or we took a uh, artist or an athlete that just mentioned Jesus, and we next thing you knew, we turn them into the spokesman for the faith, and only to see that they filter out after a while because they've not been discipled, they've not been, uh, they've not allowed their character to develop. I'm not saying they weren't saved. I'm just saying we were guilty of put them on a, a pedestal and they need, it, need not be there. Um, also, it was a generation that felt like if we could get our kids to walk an aisle and get baptized, our parenting was over. We felt like spiritually that's all they needed. Only to see 60% of baptisms today are rebaptisms because a heart, transfer, heart transformation never took place. And we just felt like if we could get our kids to walk an aisle and get baptized, whew, we got them in, they're saved forever. We uh, also saw a generation that turned from theocentric families, God-centered families, to kid-centric families. Our kids decided everything. They decided what the family should do. They decided where should we worship, if we should worship. And our kid-centric worship, along with our uh, sports worship, turned into, let's just make Sunday a family day to go and do instead of coming to worship. And I saw a generation... And then one more, we tried to be as much like the world as we possibly could because we felt like that is how we're going to reach the world. I'm just being honest. I, I, I've seen it in a generation. And we are called to go against the flow, not go with it. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he lays out, I think, three, three compelling things that led him to be a world changer instead of a, going with the flow. He let these things so radically change him that he was willing to go against the flow. 
I, I wonder, this is, this is on the record, but off the record, I guess. I wonder how many of us would have come to Jesus, even though Jesus did what he did. He went to the cross, he rose from the dead. I wonder how many of us would have truly followed Jesus if somebody stood up and told us the truth that you're going to be put into a culture that hates your guts, they hated Jesus first, they're going to hate you. I wonder how many of us would have responded to the gospel. I don't know. Because what we're tempted to do is, listen, don't you want your sins forgiven? Don't you want to go to heaven someday? Well, heck yeah. But we don't read the total scriptures. Stick with me. I, I don't want to. Uh, uh, I don't want to depress you. But Second Corinthians chapter five. I, I'm going to read the whole chapter because I think it's so beneficial. And then I'm going to come back and just give you three things that were motivating factors in Paul's life. Verse one: For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The word guarantee is kind of like a word down payment or it would be like uh, if you're uh, dating someone and uh, the guy gets down on the knee and he asks you to marry him and there's a ring he puts on your finger that is a symbol that you're going to get married. That's what the Holy Spirit is a guarantee to us as believers that an ultimate wedding day is going to occur when we're in the face of Jesus. Okay? So that's what it means by Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, this one thing, to please Him, God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. 
For the love of Christ controls us. Your Bible may say compels us. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to share with you three things out of this text that I believe are Paul's motivation to go against the flow and to be a minister of reconciliation. Number one is this, life beyond earth. Life beyond earth. You can write that down. He starts out this passage by saying, if this earthly tent, that was his description of these earthly bodies. If this tent and it, it is torn down. We, we break camp. That's the way he saw death. We're breaking camp. We're going to a new campground. It, and he saw that to be absent from the body was to be present from, from, with the Lord. So if he was to live, he was to be fruitful. He was to please Christ. If he is in the presence of the Lord, so be it. I, I don't think we think about uh, uh, heaven a, a whole lot. We, we may think about it as a uh, passing glance. I know some of you are older, you're thinking, you, uh, I don't know how much time we have, but this tent, we will all face um, the judgment seat of Christ one day. And we will all stand before the Lord. And we will all be there. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. We will all step out of these earth suits. And so I don't, I don't say that to give you fear. I just say that as a fact that we know that we will all pass. And so what Paul said is Paul saw that as a motivation to please God because he didn't know how much time he had. And he, he wanted to prepare people that they were going to stand before the Lord. I read this quote this week. Most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. Let me read that again. Most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. What does that mean? That we become so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good? No, that's not what that means. 
it means that we see life is so much more than what we see on this planet. And that's, that was motivation to Paul. He loved every man. He loved every woman, every child. And he wanted them someday to be in the presence of the Lord. We know that according to Scripture, he said, I wish that I could be condemned so that my people could come into the kingdom. And, and so he, he believed wholeheartedly in that. And I wonder sometimes, does it not break our heart that people are going to spend eternity separated from God? Sometimes we're guilty of thinking, well, they don't deserve to be there. I don't want them there. If that's the way it's going to be. I mean, we get so fleshly in our, in our mentality. But life beyond earth it should be a motivation factor for us. Number two is this. Write down the love of Christ. The love of Christ. What Paul says here is that the love of Christ compels him. It controls him. It is the thing that uh, has made the eternal difference in his life. Because you see, Paul had been the religious of the religious, and he knew it had left him dry. He knew he had served with zeal. He had served with fervor. He had done it, uh, he had done it all for the sake of religion. And it left him dry and hopeless and with no direction. And all of a sudden, he meets Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, he experiences the love of God that would, would take care of every sin as far as the East is from the West. He knew that his righteousness was in Christ alone. That left to himself, he was totally removed from God. He could not stand in God's presence, but because of what Christ had done. And so that love that had poured out on him all of a sudden is the compulsion to go out and love others into the kingdom. Here's what concerns me today is I do not hear from our world that the bride of Christ, the church, is known for her compelling love. I don't see that. And it, and it convicts my heart that we've held to a former religion but denied the power and God, your love is not compelling us right now. But it was the compulsion of Paul. And what that means is, is like compulsion, it would be like if this center aisle is the, the compelling nature of God that is pulling us towards uh towards him and whatever we're doing we stay on the track and uh if we get off the track that that that's wrong we're compelled to stay on this track because of the way it is uh, i'll give you a modern uh thought that most cars today uh almost drive themselves when it comes to being in a lane if your car is like mine you start to uh veer after my wife punches me the, the car starts, uh, you know what I'm saying? It, it starts pulling you back into the lane. And some of you have cars that could probably drive themselves today. But that's what it is. Paul says, the love of Christ just compels me. It keeps me on the lane that I can go out there and serve God and please Him. 
And his life was to live for the one who lavishly and unconditionally poured himself out for him. The third thing that motivated and compelled uh, Paul, first of all, we see that uh, he was compelled because there was life beyond earth. We know the love of Christ compelled him. The third thing is this, living in his new identity. Living in his new identity. Notice verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. See, I'm a firm believer that when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, when you've repented of your sin and you put your trust in Him, He takes His very Spirit and resides within you. And what happens at that point, you become a new creation. Your identity changes. You are no longer the person you were. You're not known by your past. You're known by your new identity, which is in Christ. And I believe that even many believers today are suffering from a misidentity. You're still trying to find your identity and your works and your, uh, the things you do. And what's happening is you're just finding yourself dry instead of giving in and saying, okay, God, my identity is in you, uh, in you alone. And then it, notice what he said. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. And an ambassador is somebody who, uh, let's say we, we have another country, we have an embassy in, we have an ambassador there. That's actually a small taste of the United States. That guy represents the president. He represents the United States in that foreign country. And Paul is saying, we, we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. So, what that leads me to know is that our students going back to school and our teachers going back to school this, uh, this week, what that means is you want to see Jesus Christ in the school, you ought to be able to look at a follower of Jesus and see Christ. You want to see in Dell Computer or Apple or Samsung or whatever a high-tech market, you want to see a, a, a Jesus there, you ought to be able to look at a follower of Jesus and see a taste of Christ there. You want to see uh, in HEB or you want to see at the Little League fields, you want, to see, uh, you want to see Jesus, you ought to be able to look at a follower of Jesus and see him there. You see, we are Christ ambassadors. Now, you look at us, there's not, really much to see sometimes. Uh, last week, Ross Jordan and I were in my office and, uh, and uh, he was looking at pictures on the wall and some of the pictures are the last time we went to Israel and one of the last times, the last time we went to Israel, we, there's a, a gift store just outside of Bethlehem. It's actually owned by Christians uh, there and uh, you go, they have a lot of olive wood stuff that's there. But the guy who uh, owns the store, his great-grandfather 
was part of the team that, uh, uh, that after they found the original in Qumran, uh, I don't want to bore you with this, but they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may remember they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, hid through a rock in there, he heard a clay pot break, and then they went in. And so his great-grandfather was part of that going in. And so in his store, he's got in a glass case, he's got one of the big old uh, jars of clay that the Dead Sea Scrolls were in there. They're not in there now, but uh, he's got that in his uh, store. And so I asked him, I said, uh, you get some good offers for that. He said, I've been offered millions of dollars for that uh, jar of clay. And I'm thinking, man, that's, that's incredible. It's just a jar of clay. What made that jar of clay of value is what was in it. You see, you and I, we're but dust and water and electrical impulses that somehow go through that. But I'm telling you, we are incredible because the Spirit of the living God indwells us. And that ought to compel us because of our new identity to display Christ and love on people going against the flow. You know, oil and water do not mix. They, if you've seen oil and water, uh, because they just don't mix. I don't care if you shake them up, they will eventually separate again, oil and water. And uh, so we look at oil and water and we think, man, we can't uh, mix them together. I, I look at us apart from Christ, we're separated from God. It's oil and water. There's nothing we can do to come uh, to Him. But mayonnaise is basically oil and water. And uh, you take mayonnaise and you put it on bread, you put it uh, in potato salad, whatever you may do with it, and uh, you, you, you use it. Well, why, why is mayonnaise, which is basically oil and water, uh, able to be useful? It's something called an emulsifier is what is um, added. An emulsifier in mayonnaise is actually eggs. Eggs have a way of taking the oil and absorbing it and the water and pulling them together and they can become useful uh, for us eating. What God did is that we are separated because of our unholiness. There's none righteous, no, not one. And then you have a holy God and we're separated from Him. And what he did is he sent Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, to identify fully with us. And through the cross, he was able to take all the sins of this unsinful, uh, this sinful mankind and redeem them. And he was the emulsifier to bring God and man so that we could come together and we see these new creations in Jesus Christ. And then what the scriptures tell us is that we now have the ministry of reconciliation. You see, we live in a divided day. Uh, marriages are dissolving. 
uh, relationships dissolved. There's tons of division in our country. And yet God has set you and me up as the ministers of reconciliation to be the emulsifiers to, to take Jesus, who is the redeemer of mankind, and take one hand and reach out to others and one hand to Jesus Christ and attempt to bring them together. That's what our purpose is. And that's what Paul said. He said, you have the ministry of reconciliation. You as followers of Jesus have the ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes we think, ah, oh, you know, I just would rather stand on my issues. Listen, you're not called to stand on issues. You're called to display the love of Christ in a world that desperately needs Him. Let me just bring it down. August 28th, Sunday evening, 6 o'clock, we're going to gather. I think the church and us as individuals have things we need to repent of. I think, well, I know my desire is for us to be the church of Jesus Christ, the salt and light, to display the love of Christ. The world is going to hate us. He told us that. But yet we're called to go against the flow so that we may take others with us. I want you to bow your heads with me if you